had not realized just how big this world was until perhaps even that moment. When all these cameramen and you're standing there, standing there with three or four of the other girls waiting on our names to be called. And then all of a sudden, I mean, Miss England is standing there to me, Yvonne Orms. And she said, who do you think it is? And I said, I think it's you. And she said, I think it's you. And of course, we were all, all being political. And Miss World 1970 is Miss Grenada. It, it was a thrilling experience and one that I think will certainly will last for the rest of my life. Today we're exploring the intersections of race, beauty and representation through the lives and actions of three remarkable women. You just heard from Jennifer Hoston, a contestant from Grenada and the first black woman to be crowned Miss World. The 1970 beauty pageant was filmed by the BBC and broadcast around the world. It hit the headlines not only because of Jennifer's win, but because of an unexpected protest. The second is the communist activist and journalist Claudia Jones, whose work in the 1950s and 60s challenged representations of black women and encouraged them to celebrate their beauty and their Caribbean identity. As Claudia Jones expert, Dr Rochelle Rowe explains. It seems like a massive contradiction that she's a Marxist feminist and she starts a beauty competition. But she's sort of saying, you know, black beauty culture is all well and good and let's use it to our advantage. So she wanted to produce countercultural images of black beauty and black pride. And finally, a trailblazer working today, entrepreneur and today's co-host, Ade Hassan. It's so, so important for a black woman to see their beauty and to see it being celebrated and to see it being acknowledged. In the context of Black Lives Matter, you know, if you're saying Black Lives Matter, that isn't just like, don't kill us, because that's the very extreme end of it. It's we matter in every aspect of life. So anything that the majority has, we should have too. I'm Ade Hassan and I have unfinished business. This is Unfinished Business, the podcast that explores how feminist activism in the UK has its roots in the complex history of women's rights. I'm Polly Russell, a curator responsible for an upcoming exhibition of the same name, which is opening from October to February at the British Library in London. The exhibition is brilliant. If you can visit, do. You just won't be disappointed. But I wanted to get deep into some of the themes that the exhibition covers, from women and mental health, to sexual pleasure, to domestic violence, to comedy, to cycling and more. Each episode, a different presenter with an area of expertise or a burning question to ask will be using objects from the exhibition to explore ideas and themes with invited guests. Hi, Adi. Hi, Polly. How Hi. are you doing? I'm really good. I'm really good. At the helm today is Ade Hassan herself. Ade's lingerie company is rethinking the definition of nude. It's a very simple premise. It's skin tone or nude undergarments, so bras, knickers, bodysuits, etc., with different skin tones which suit women of colour. Because nude, which is a very important colour um, when it comes to lingerie, 
was very one-dimensional. It was beige, so it did not work if you had darker skin. And that was something I found incredibly frustrating. And so I created Nubian Skin to address that. It's sort of when you know exactly what you want and you can't get it, that is a very annoying thing. And I think this is probably part of being raised for part of my life in Nigeria, where my skin color wasn't a barrier to anything because everybody was black, <laughs> right? And so then being in a position where you're like, but I know that I need this, why does this not exist for me? How do you account for that, that it's not until 2014 that women of color are being catered for by the underwear industry? I get asked that question a lot, and my view is it really depends on who's making decisions. And so most large underwear companies are owned by older or middle-aged white men. So if you have somebody in that position of power, they know nude is selling, right? If it's not broken, like, why fix it? And they don't have people in their lives who are saying, actually, that nude doesn't work for me. And how was your idea initially received? One of the most amazing things about creating a company is getting the customer feedback. I remember one, it was a young girl, she says, I'm a student in Wales. She says, I can't afford anything right now, but I'm saving up for my first Nubian skin bra. She goes, there's not very many people that look like me where I am, and so this is just so important. Um, and then you've got, um, I remember somebody saying, you know, my, I think it was either my aunt or my mum, I think she says she was like 60 or 70 or something, and she goes, she just wishes this was around when she was younger. She can't believe that this now exists. So many people sending emails just being saying, thank you for seeing me. Thank you for, for providing something for us. I've got two questions that are related. The first is, if you think that your idea could have worked, would have worked 20 years ago, 40 years ago, if I personally was alive, you know, um, and at an age where I could have launched 20 or 40 years ago, I do not necessarily think we would have got the attention that we did. Actually, I know we would not have. Yes, and then sort of throwing forward, I'm really interested to think what's happened, what's changed in the time since you've launched from 2014 today. And I'm thinking about that in particular in context of what's happening in terms of Black Lives Matter. If I was opening the company today, people would get it. It would just be a lot quicker, I think. Um, retailers would be a lot more mindful, I would say. I mean, and I also think if I look back at when I came up with the idea and then when I started on the colours, lingerie already, I mean, still isn't having lots of different tones. The skin tones is still relatively rare when it comes to lingerie brands. But makeup, you would think, would be different. But I remember in 2013, walking into several different department stores trying to find foundation shades because I thought maybe I could match those two fabric colors. And there were so few makeup brands in department stores which even had multiple colors. That was 2013. It wasn't until a few years ago where that really became a big issue about having lots of different tones. And so with lingerie, we're still so far behind even that. So here's the question. What because we're talking about makeup and we're talking about underwear. And those things are perhaps sometimes dismissed as being frivolous. You know, they're superficial. What, you know, what does this matter? What does it matter if a young black woman or a black woman can't get the makeup that she wants, can't get the right skin tone underwear? So what? This isn't the big issues. Over the past few years, you hear comments and, and people say things like, oh, it's just underwear, it doesn't matter. It could be red, blue, yellow, whatever. And then my question to them is always like, that's interesting. 
So how would you feel if you couldn't have tights in your colour? So let's say the only tights that were available were brown or the only nude slip to wear under your lace dress was brown or your wedding dress. Great, it's, you know, you've got sheer sort of white ivory panels <laughs> and the only thing that you can have to line that is brown. How would you feel? You know, and I think that's the real key because a lot of times people go, oh, it doesn't matter. But it does matter if you try and take it away from them. And how were you brought up to think about beauty? My family is sort of my everything. And for me, the paradigm of beauty, the like pinnacle of beauty was my mother. I just, I was obsessed. (laughs) (laughs) I just thought she was the most beautiful woman. I mean, I still think that in the world. And so... My approach to beauty and my perception of beauty is very much shaped by that. I also grew up in lots of different places. So I was born in the UK, but um, grew up sort of, we moved to Saudi Arabia and then I moved to Nigeria, which was a very, very important and just one of the loveliest times I think of my childhood. Lagos, parties, I would just sort of with bated breath as my mom would get ready to go to, I don't know, you know, whatever party. And she's like, putting on her rumpaba, that's like the traditional top and the wrap um, skirt, and she's, you know, tying her gaily, and I was just like, oh my gosh. All those little moments were sort of the foundations of what I perceived as beauty. So now we know a bit more about Ade, I wanted to find out what she was hoping to learn from making this podcast. I think one of the things that's exciting me the most is really looking at how different women perceive beauty, but also the politics around black beauty and how that has progressed over time and to see how far we've actually come. So to do so, I decided to take Ade back into the past and show her some of the standout objects from the Unfinished Business exhibition. First up, a copy of the West Indian Gazette, which was a newspaper founded in 1958 in Brixton, South London, by the Trinidadian communist and black activist mentioned earlier, Claudia Jones. The paper is widely considered to have been Britain's first major black newspaper, a mouthpiece of community building. Indeed, Claudia Jones herself wrote in her last published essay, The Caribbean Community in Britain, that, and I quote, the newspaper has served as a catalyst, quickening the awareness socially and politically of West Indians, Afro-Asians and their friends. The paper also advertised beauty pageants, which Claudia Jones had in fact started. Inspired by her experience as a child and young woman growing up in the Caribbean and New York's Harlem, of beauty pageants and black beauty culture. I hadn't heard of her before, so it was was really curious to sort of learn more about who she was and, and what she did. But it was lovely to see some of the clippings and the images because I just thought how important that must have been for those communities at that time. Were you aware that those communities were organising black beauty pageants? What, what do you think they were trying to achieve, do you think? You know, I didn't know that. Um, and when I did see it, to me, I thought, how lovely. And I know beauty pageants are so politicised, but I can just imagine back then how meaningful that was. Because you have people who've come from, you know, they've come from the Caribbean, they're in a new country, a new environment, a lot of them are treated very poorly, 
and you know, similar to Nigeria where you've got this standard of beauty and what's considered beautiful, they'll have their own standard of what's considered beautiful. And then you come somewhere where people don't recognize that. I can imagine it would have been incredibly empowering to see something that is catering to you and is celebrating the beauty that's coming from your culture. I just loved Ade's description of celebrating the beauty that's coming from your own culture as something that's really important in terms of self-esteem and sense of self-representation. And that's why I wanted to introduce Ade to the author and historian, Dr. Rochelle Rowe. Rochelle has written a wonderful book called Imagining Caribbean Womanhood, a cultural history of Caribbean beauty competitions spanning from Kingston, Jamaica to London. I couldn't imagine anyone more perfect for Ade to chat to about ideas of representation and beauty and their history. Hi. Hi, Ade. Rochelle, I am so, so excited to be speaking to you because I, one, don't know that much about your area of expertise, so I'm incredibly excited to learn a little bit more about all of it. Uh, so I'm going to jump right in. And where did your interest in the history of beauty and specifically black beauty come from? Great question. I think it was always in me, <laughs> so to speak. You know, I grew up very much surrounded by black beauty culture as the child of what we now refer to as Windrush generation mm. migrants from Barbados. And I grew up sort of inured in particularly my grandmother's sense of style and the importance of dignity. She had this thing she called presentableness and she would sort of collar us before we left the house if we were staying with her and cream our faces <laughs> if we you had, know like... I love that you have said that because when I was speaking earlier I was saying how you presented yourself was so important and to me the idea of style and beauty are just so intertwined yeah, so it really gave me that sense of dress as, I don't think it was necessarily conscious, but a sort of a psychic defence almost against racism. Rochelle's interest in fashion and beauty led her to research the life and work of Caribbean-born activist Claudia Jones. I didn't know much about Claudia Jones, and I think a lot of people actually don't know who she is. So who, who was she? People said that she had the sort of glamour and the aura of, you know, a movie star or a jazz singer. She is, Claudia Jones, is a Caribbean-born, Harlem-raised, feminist, activist, intellectual philosopher who is deported under the McCarthyist uh, witch hunts wow. um, of the 50s in the United States. She's a the first black woman prisoner of conscience in the United States. And because she's born in Trinidad, she is a subject of the British Empire. And so she comes to Britain and very quickly sets about organising amongst the new Caribbean settlers in London and becomes a real community leader there. Goodness, that's phenomenal. I actually had no idea about that. That's an amazing feat to one becoming from poverty be essentially exiled from your country and then have to start all over again and yet have such an impact on the Caribbean community. Absolutely, that's the thing. And so she very quickly starts organising here. She founds the West Indian Gazette. So in terms of what we have now, like with Edward Ennefel editing Vogue, for example, like, you know, this is like obviously so much a very exciting moment. But then I think things looked very, very different for, say, a young black woman growing up in London who's interested in fashion and beauty and style. The West Indian Gazette would have been a real 
rare opportunity to see yourself reflected back in the media yeah. at all. And then in response to the racist violence that erupts in the summer of 1958, she then organises Caribbean Carnival, the first one in February 1959. This inaugural event was televised by the BBC. In Claudia's foreword to its souvenir brochure, she wrote that... Our carnival symbolises the unity of our people resident here and of all our many friends who love the West Indies. There were live performances, including from popular singer The Mighty Terror singing the Calypso Carnival at St Pancras. There were steel bands, dance troops, community leaders, activists, writers, all sorts of people went along to celebrate. The following six years would see the annual celebration staged in local town halls and community centres. So she's sort of trying to show that, um, you know, the Caribbean community has an identity, it has a rich culture to be proud of, and it has a contribution to make to Britain rather than being seen as, you know, a problematic group of people who are going to you know, somehow harm the social fabric of Britain, which is what was being argued in, at the time. So she founds Carnival, which later, you know, in, a, in other guise becomes the Notting Hill Carnival, but it starts life in St Pancras Town Hall in London. And with it, she founds Carnival Queen, the beauty competition. At the exhibition in the British Library, we've got the most fabulous photograph of beautiful swimsuit-clad women on stage all lining up, uh, hoping to win as beauty queens. They were contenders for the Carnival Queen at the Caribbean Carnival in 1959. Claudia's competition was inspired by Caribbean pageants and black beauty culture in New York, but she appreciated that the original competitions weren't without their problems. Very often, they were considered too important to be left to women. They were actually very much the preoccupation of, in the Caribbean, of patriotic men, business-minded men and also patriotic mm. men, although women kept getting involved as organisers as well and commentators on beauty competitions. But often beauty competitions became the sort of focus of a national conversation about identity, about which black body do we actually want to mm. parade as an ideal of ourselves. Um, so colorism weighed heavily in that space. Colorism is the preferential treatment of lighter skinned people compared with those who have darker skin. Bearing all these issues in mind... By contrast, she's trying to really affirm black femininity through her competitions. The criteria are similar to what you'd expect for a beauty competition. But she basically says, write in, send us a photo. She's asking people to put themselves forward, which is really original. And then the people that she engages as judges, they're like the foremost of Caribbean artists of the day who happen to be in London. It just has a different flavour <laughs> altogether. But let's just take a step back. Perhaps you're wondering why this remarkable black rights activist, feminist and communist wanted to create a beauty competition. Claudia had her reasons. It was a means of engaging people 
and a means of affirming people as well, affirming mm. black women and engaging them and politicizing them. And she would repeatedly say, you know, this is your chance to make a career in beauty. The prizes for the competition were things like beauty training or modeling. Yeah. I think it was linked to her project to make people's, you know, lives sustainable and amidst a very bleak kind of landscape, you know, most people yeah. were doing really very difficult work. You know, the black British community was kind of lumped together by the press and by the media and people who'd experienced maybe more skilled or professional work in the Caribbean mm. were finding themselves doing, you know, really yeah. much more menial work here and those who did enter the professions were very much considered the second class tier so she was using it as an agent to kind of uplift in in the most positive sense yeah and i think that's really interesting because i guess in the midst of all that what was the attitude towards beauty for women of color within the uk at that time i mean even earlier in my research, I remember coming across the occasional image of a black model in, you know, maybe it was a Marks and Spencer's um, advert mm. or something. So I was often, I was sometimes pleasantly surprised, but I think it was very sporadic. So in terms of the availability of products, I read a lot about people traveling great distances to get to the one salon in East London yeah, or the course. one salon in West London. Um, I think there was sort of patchy representation and you'd go there and you'd get everything that you could get your hands on. And just touching on Claudia for a bit, how much she was doing and what she was doing for the black community at that time feels particularly relevant right now, especially now we're in sort of a new phase of, you know, Black Lives Matter and people being much more conscious about what's going on in the black community. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I wanted people to know that black beauty has a long history um, and it's very, very closely tied to racialization and the workings of racism. And so one thing that Claudia Jones knew is that these uh, attacks on our personhood and dignity are crucial to resist. Um, and so the current Black Lives Matter movement is articulating that again. You know, it's this mm. the thing of not having autonomy over our own bodies. She's a pragmatist. You know, it, it, it seems like a massive contradiction that she's a Marxist feminist and she starts a beauty competition. <laughs> but she's sort of saying, you know, black beauty culture is all well and good and let's use it to our advantage to articulate yeah. our sense of personal pride and dignity and the opportunities that there may be to you know sustain ourselves but also she was interested in imagery and representation and so she wanted to produce countercultural images of black beauty and black pride there's no denying the scope of claudia's political vision as a communist and an activist her work as an editor and in founding the Caribbean Carnival were grounded in a passionate commitment to celebrating community, as well as improving and challenging the status of women. She was an incredible figure and one who I think should be a household name in the UK for the contribution and impact that she made. She tragically passed away in December 1964 at the age of 49, but an event six years later would catapult the issue of black women and beauty centre stage across the world. Miss Grenada. 
It was November 1970, and a 23-year-old woman called Jennifer Hostin had arrived in London from Grenada in the Caribbean, ahead of the Miss World competition. The beauty pageant was backed by multinational companies, broadcast by the BBC and watched by millions of families across the globe. Miss Holland! Women from all over the world competed within their countries, then came together in London to battle it out in a variety of different costumes, swimsuits included, to be crowned the most beautiful woman in the world. Through a video call from London to Canada, Ade met Jennifer, who remembers clearly the build-up to the event. I was representing Grenada, which was perhaps one of the smallest countries mm. there. And my big job was to tell people that Grenada was spelt with an E and not with an A, and it wasn't right. a town in Spain. And then, of course, I realised what a big hurdle it would be because nobody expected me to win. The odds were 25 to 1. It was difficult because the newspapers, the, the media didn't focus on the girls from, you know, from lesser yeah. well-known countries like the Caribbean and parts of Asia and so on. When you were there, how did you feel? Were you calm? Were you excited? Were you nervous? There was a rehearsal the night before the contest where we all expected to have a chance to go on stage yeah. only to discover that 15 girls... 15 of perhaps the most likely potential winners, as far as the media and so on were concerned, were chosen to have the complete oh. run-through. And so the rest of us sat in the audience watching that. And I remember coming back that night and shedding quite a few tears oh. and walking in my sister's room. My sister was one of my chaperones and being more determined than ever to try to surprise these people that didn't expect anything. So, the night arrived and Jennifer was on stage at the Royal Albert Hall in London. You're standing there, standing there with three or four of the other girls waiting on our names to be called. And all I could think then was, at least I reached the finals. Mm. And then all of a sudden, I mean, Miss England is standing there to me, Yvonne Orms, and she said, who do you think it is? And I said, I think it's you. And she said, I think it's you. And, of course, we were all, all being political, all hoping it would be ourselves, you know. <laughs> and then I heard it, and, of course, I was surprised. You can see that, you know, and so shocked in initially. And then I realised that I'm not going to do what I saw so many other previous winners do, collapse in tears and mm. fall down and all this sort of thing, you know. No, I was not going to cry. I was going to be the most elegant Miss World. I love it. <laughs> so I held my head up, you know, as directly as I could and made sure that that very heavy crown would not mm. fall off. And when I think back on it now, because it was such a glamorous time, and I really had not realised just how big Miss World was mm. until that, perhaps even that moment. Yes. When all these cameramen and, and so on, it, it, it was a thrilling experience. 
and one that I think will certainly will last for the rest of my life. But of course, the next day I was brought down to reality and when I realised that I was a real surprise to a lot of people. While this was a huge moment for Jennifer and black women around the world, there's even more to this story than we might have let on. Shortly before Jennifer was crowned, chaos erupted in the Royal Albert Hall. A group of women's liberation activists had snuck into the hall and just as the host, comedian Bob Hope, was telling a particularly sexist joke, they started throwing flower bombs onto the stage and dropping leaflets into the crowd. The leaflets read, we're not beautiful, we're not ugly, we're angry. These women's liberation movement activists found the idea of women being judged by how they looked to be insulting and demeaning. And yet, at the very same time, this was a big moment for Jennifer and also for so many black women around the world. So you have this contradiction. On the one hand, should women be judged by what they look like? But on the other hand, should they be able to feel that they are beautiful and be able to represent themselves? It's complicated. This tension is explored in a brilliant film released earlier this year called Misbehaviour. Starring Gugu Mbatha-Raw and Kira Knightley, it explores what happened on that night and in the run-up to the event. Ade and Rochelle Rowe had much to say about the disruption and the film. Obviously, around the time the black beauty pageants were happening, there was also the women's liberation feminists who were majority white, and they were sort of fighting to reclaim the idea of you know what the ideal beauty was or what the goals for women should be and so what in your perspective is that showing us or telling us about the different experiences of white women and then women of color at that specific time in the film misbehavior which i really enjoyed that recently came out they imagine a conversation between one of the lead protesters sally alexander who's now a professor of history and between Jennifer Hostin just after she's won the competition. And it's an interesting conversation. And they kind of put the same question, they're putting the question that you've asked me in a way um, to the viewers. Congratulations. I don't think you mean that. It's not you we're angry at. It really isn't. You know, there will be little girls watching tonight who'd see themselves differently because I won, who might just start to believe that you don't have to be white to have a place in the world. What does this, this moment mean for two different women on different sides of this event? The winner and who's a, who's a black woman and is doing so much to try and increase the visibility of black beauty and someone who quite understandably is protesting it as you know, a total objectifying parade. I'm glad. I really hope that the world opens up for them and for you. But making us compete with each other over the way we look, doesn't that make the world narrower for all of us in the end? All I can say is, I look forward to having your choices in life. What's interesting is there was a lot of feminist protesting and organising amongst the black British community at this time, certainly throughout the 70s, and I'm not an expert in this, but as we know, often... Mm white and black feminism can be sometimes on contending planes because it, at times mainstream white feminism has marginalised black women's voices and attempted to speak for us and we end up being silenced I think as black feminist voices 
But in terms of that moment, I think it it shows that for black women, very often it was about even getting a seat at the table, (laughs) you know, a slice of the pie. Beauty was seen as the special property of white women. And with it, all these other properties of femininity are enclosed you know so if you're if you're not seen as a beautiful woman then maybe you're not treated with dignity and kindness and respect so a black woman winning miss world was clearly a big deal and according to jennifer the conversation shown in the film between her character and the lead activist sally alexander did indeed happen with some of those very words being spoken but it took place 40 years after the actual event when they appeared together on a radio show. This left one unanswered question for Ade. Now, the win obviously had a, a big impact, you know, in your life. How did it affect, how do you feel that it affected black women at the time to see a black woman from a small country win, I think what was arguably then probably the most viewed TV show in the world? Well, it was very powerful. And, you know, Addie, I meet women of colour today. And, you know, the first thing they say to me, which makes me realise 50 years has gone by, Jennifer, when we were children Mm. and we saw you win, it was such a boost for us. Made us realise that we could do it too. They said we were so proud. I think representation is a very important thing. I see more and more women of colour going into these areas. But more important is the fact that they are now being recognised for their contributions. And beauty and the things we associate with it is no longer as Eurocentric as it was in my time. Where do you feel we are in terms of representation, in terms of beauty? Where do you feel we are when it comes to representation and rights for black women? I think that there is no greater strength than people coming together. Mm. And this is why I feel the women's movement And I see suggestions of them coming together now in the Black Lives Matter movement. I see inklings of white women embracing the challenges that black Mm. people have to face. And this is what is required. That was what would have made that demonstration in 1970 much more powerful Mm. if they had reached out to us. And we had had an opportunity to explain to them what it meant to us to be included, what representation for women of colour would mean. So where are we now? Ade and Rochelle had some striking last thoughts. Sort of from my perspective, with Nubian Skin, seeing the number of women who are now just unapologetically sort of saying, this is my body, this is my black body, and I'm taking space, and this is beautiful. You know, sometimes people look at beauty as frivolous, but it has a lot of ramifications, I think, for self-confidence and self-worth. And so seeing women just standing in that and and, and embracing that is is pretty phenomenal. You think about it, underwear, which is something you wear every single day, 
and nude, which is the colour of your skin. It's just such a simple thing. But for a whole demographic of women, it just didn't exist. I live in a small seaside town and it's staggering to me now that we can you can go into high street like pharmacists and see black hair care products. I know. <laughs> it's really striking and now it's like oh you know, recognising that they have black consumers and that we're having to make special journeys to Honestly. specialist shops to buy that stuff. And it's, it ties back to the um, conversation we were having earlier about the concerns of mainstream white feminism and black feminism seeming to go after things that might seem almost so sort of elementary like mm. you know why are you still worrying about that when this, <laughs> it's like actually this is really core and yeah, exactly. but we haven't got that yet I really wanted to know what Ade had thought about her conversation with Rochelle it's that idea of like plus change, you know it's like some things haven't changed that much, actually. When she was talking about, you know, the 50s and 60s, how people would have to travel, like, just to get hair care or something. And I remember when I came back to the UK from the US, traveling two hours to go to a salon that used, you know, the right hair care products that I was looking for. Two hours, this is in 2006, 2005, you know, that's like 60 years. And, you know, some things are still the same, but then also, obviously, there has been a lot of progress when you look at from, you know, 2020, where we are now, to then, number one, representation. I mean, that is, there's been a lot of progress. You know, there's still work to be done. When you hear about, you know, the Windrush generation coming and people that were teachers and nurses not being able to find that same kind of level of employment, to a degree, still happens quite a lot with immigrants today. But obviously now there are, you know, black CEOs, there are black lawyers, there are black nurses. I think what's been partly so inspiring in speaking to you and, and hearing your reflections has been thinking that actually Nubian skin is part of that journey. It's part of that action. It's part of that politics. And I think that's incredibly exciting to think that, you know, this business is really being part of the change. And that's just wonderful. Oh, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's definitely, I think, when I look back, that's Probably the thing that makes me proudest is the impact it has had on the industry and opening up that conversation around what inclusivity is. And so I am, I'm proud of that actually, I have to say. You've been listening to Unfinished Business, a Pixie production for the British Library. It's been fantastic hearing from Ade Hassan, Dr. Rochelle Rowe and Jennifer Hoston. If you've enjoyed this episode, look out for our upcoming show dedicated to the topic of intersectionality with three incredible guests, poet Sahima Manzor Khan, academic Azizat Johnson and activist Gail Lewis. It is the most wonderful conversation. But before then, I'll leave you with Ade and someone who I think might be a brand new customer. Since I heard about you, I did some research. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a brilliant thing because I have in the past looked and looked for my shade of, of stockings, always with some difficulty. So I, I congratulate you. 
Oh, thank you. And I, I think that's wonderful that you have come up with these colors and these shades. Well, if we'd been around in 1970, we would have loved to have sent you um, all the things you needed for your underpinnings for the show. I wish you great success with it. Thank you. Thank you so much.